Well, we've been going through this series through the book of Acts, and as we try to remind ourselves every Sunday, it's about becoming his church, and this isn't just the title of a series, it's really what we want to be the desire of our church. Our motivation, our goal, our objectives is, is to become his church. And we've been looking at the book of Acts. This is the church, you know, at the very, very, very beginning, 2,000 years ago. And we see, like, what's happening in that church and what's been consistent about that church is that they've been obedient to God's word. They, they want to know God's word. They, whether it's for them, they got to, you know, have the Hebrew scriptures that had God's word, but they also had the God's word coming from Jesus himself, his teachings. And they're obeying him. They're obeying him in the big things and the small things. As small a thing as, hey, go to Jerusalem and just wait. They do that. But they do the big things too. They do things in, in unity. They do it together. There's, a, there's a, this, this almost otherworldly community developing among the Christians that's just so radically different. So radically different from from anything around that time, and I would still say it's so different from, from much of what happens even in our world today. We've seen the Holy Spirit at work in so many different ways. Yes, the Holy Spirit coming on the church and in power with, you know, with the gift of tongues in some situations, but in other situations, it's just with this, this boldness, this courage, but also with this incredible love they have for one another. And we've seen faithfulness. And, you know, you might think like, hey, that faithfulness was, you know, because everything was going so well, but as we've been reading in the book of Acts, our definition of things going well is not, wouldn't really meet the definition of what we've seen in Acts. We've seen disputes within the church. We've seen people trying to pass themselves off in the church to be holier than they are. We've seen enemies of the church come and persecute, arrest, you know, drag leaders into, into prison, you know, torture them, beat them, people leaving their homes. You've seen all of that. And through it all, what's consistent is that God's people, they, they're together, they're faithful. And we're going to come to another passage of scripture today where it seems like more of the same. It seems like the world is now pressing on to the church. When the church first started, not very many people knew about it, but as it's beginning to grow and to spread, it's beginning to be seen as a threat. And so in Acts chapter 12, we read this. It says, after that, about that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in, a pr in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now when Herod was about to bring him out, on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains, and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. 
And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord, and they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I'm sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice, in her joy she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you're out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, it is his angel. But Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. Now when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord, and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace, because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of a god and not of a man. Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory, and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied, and Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. So we come to this story and, and we've, you know, we've seen what's happened so far and the, that no matter what is thrown at the church, the church keeps growing. The church keeps spreading, keeps advancing. It's moved from just being in Jerusalem and primarily to, to the, the Jewish people in Jerusalem and it's gone into Samaria and now it's going into just bigger parts of the world. We, we talked about last week how it was up in Antioch and it was in Cyprus, which is an island in the Mediterranean and, and even all the way down into North Africa. All of these things are happening. But what's also happening is the persecution is growing and the persecution is intensifying. And what we, what we see here is, you know, we see Herod, the king, says, He's the grandson of Herod the Great when, when Jesus was born. And we, we get this 
kind of amazing thing that happens here in Acts 12, because a lot of people will go like, oh, Acts 12, you know, that, you know, that's the Bible, and, you know, the Bible just, you know, makes up these stories. This story is largely corroborated by, by a Jewish historian named Josephus, who's not a Christian, who has no reason to corroborate the story, might not have even known this gospel existed, probably didn't. But he writes very similarly about what happens with, with Herod, um, Herod Agrippa, as, as this Herod is known. But Herod Agrippa, he was, he was king because the Roman emperor had appointed him king. And he, he got more land because the next emperor was his friend. And he knew that a lot of his power, a lot of his authority was based upon that the fact that the emperor was his friend. But what happens when his friend dies? What happens if the next emperor is not so friendly? So Herod, smart, he figures out, I gotta build a base, it just can't be purely based on who's emperor. And so he knows the predominant power in the area of which he, he's reigning. That, that power is, is largely the, the traditional Jewish leaders. And so he wants to appease them. And what better than to go after these, these Christians? He, he doesn't necessarily have a, a beef with the Christians. Now, Herod and all of, the, of, of his line, they had, they had outwardly followed all the Jewish traditions. They had outwardly you know, supported the, the temple and all of that. But, but really what we read about his life is that he didn't really follow these things. He was much more um, you know, in, in kind of the Gentile culture, the Roman culture. So he has no beef, but he sees an advantage. And, and what better, you know, I can make the powerful people happy by going after people that don't even fight back. It's a win-win. And, you know, like, just don't even really have to send that many soldiers. And so that's what they do. Go, and he goes, and he has James. James is the brother of John. He's one of the leaders of the church, and he has him killed. And then he goes, hey, well, let's just double down. Let's go after Peter now. And he goes after Peter. And he arrests him. And what we find is, if, if, you're, the, if you're the church, especially the church at Jerusalem, you could be like, at some point, if you don't really have faith in Jesus Christ, if you really haven't been changed, if you really don't have the Holy Spirit, at some point, you're going to say, when is this going to stop, God? When are we all just going to be able to get along? When are we going to just be able to live our lives? We're not hurting anybody. We're not doing anything to anybody. We're not getting in anybody's face. We're simply living our lives, loving each other, helping each other, and people hate us for this. What do we do when trial comes upon trial? You see, the response of the truly faithful is always the same, and we see it in the book of Acts. The response of the truly faithful is continue to be faithful. Continue to be faithful. 
Don't assume you know what's happening and why it's happening. Continue to be faithful. The response of those who, you know, their faith is a little shaky or, or they really don't have true faith at all or, or maybe even no faith is they're just going to give up. Too many trials. Too many things have gone wrong. And it happens, in this case, the big scale coming upon the church, problems coming upon the church, problems coming from within the church. But it also happens to us in, in, our, in our daily lives. We just think it's too much. It's too much. And we want to give up. Or we want to negotiate with God. We want to negotiate and say, okay, God, yeah, I can be faithful, but you're going to have to do this for me. If you do this for me, then, you know, I know I can be strong for you. It's a problem. And part of the problem is this not really being, being faithful, not really being experiencing the Holy Spirit in our lives, not really experiencing this incredible love that only comes from God, a love that, that, that makes all other loves not even seem like love at all. Love within which there is no, there's no selfishness, there's no pride. If we don't really have that, if we don't really know that, when trial comes upon trial, we're going to fall apart. And I think this message is particularly important, not just because life in general is always changing, but I think it's important in our day and age because the world is rapidly changing faster than it ever has. They, they talk about these things called paradigm shifts. Paradigm shifts are when, when, when things happen to a culture or to a society or even globally that radically shifts how we, how we view the world, how we interpret what's going on, what we see about our future, our general attitudes. And back when I first heard this term, it was because people were raising the alarm. And the alarm was that paradigm shifts happen every 18 months. Every 18 months, there's radical shifts in how the world thinks and what is valued. That was like 20 years ago. Do the math. How many paradigm shifts have happened in American culture over the past 20 years? And I'll, I can almost guarantee you now, it's not 18 months. Why are they happening? They're happening in some sense because of good things. They're happening because the world is more connected than ever. They're, they're happening because there's more access to information. There's more engagement, whether it's good and healthy conversation or scary kind of conversation. There's more of that going on. There's no such thing as like, you know, being able to be living in that small town unless your small town doesn't have internet and TV and radio and all those other things. Everything's connected. The world is rapidly changing. 
And let me just tell you, if the world is rapidly changing, if our society is rapidly changing, that means that what our society thinks about the church is rapidly changing. Rapidly changing. In fact, more and more of us who are in church are rapidly changing what we think church is. Changes is, is everywhere. And it's, it's moving faster than ever before. You might think, like, it doesn't seem like that for me. Well, I can almost guarantee you that if you think back 5, 10, 15, 20, 25, 30 years, you just keep going back in five-year increments, and you think about things that today you cannot live without, that you lived your entire life without. That's just technology. That's just technology. When we were growing up, we could memorize 27 phone numbers. I only know like three now. I would be hard-pressed to tell you what the church's phone number is, because on my phone, it's not a number. It's Wiley Baptist Church. Things are changing, and those are just the superficial things. You know, one of the things that really, you know, kind of was shocking to me, because I didn't grow up in this era. I grew up, you know, probably, thankfully, that I did, because I probably would have ended up never leaving my couch. But I grew up right when the video games started to get kind of cool and better, the ones you could have in your home. And what was always kind of surprising to me was when I would see like these, when I first started seeing these really like high-achieving, world-class athletes playing video games all the time. Thank like, when did you have time to train, you know? You're, you're in the NFL and you're playing Madden. I, that doesn't make sense to me. You're playing the real thing and then you want to play the video game. But it's the shift. It's what happens. How many people say, oh yeah, I was talking to someone last week and they never spoke one word. They texted. It's radical. It's changing. And those are just the superficial things. Understand the values are shifting. The values are changing. There's an increasing number of, of Americans that now think a lot of the things that we have in our Bill of Rights are wrong and they need to be taken out. And other things need to be added. Rapidly changing. Make no mistake. The attitude towards the church Whatever it's been in the past, it's going to change. There's more and more people who think that churches like ours are in some ways hate groups because we don't, we don't support certain political causes. Make no mistake. But I want you to look at the title. The title for today's sermon, God is in Control. And that's what we see in this story. We go back to this story from the very beginning. Verse 2, King Herod kills James. Next one, arrest Peter. We know now from the story, Peter's going to, 
Peter's going to be miraculously released, but James is still dead. It'd be a different story if Peter showed up at the door with James, right? Especially because he probably got beheaded, so it'd be kind of weird. But he doesn't. James dies and he stays dead. One of the things we need to understand, this is so much expressed in Scripture, but we so easily forget it, that God is in control whether we survive or die. God is not out of control because I died. He's not out of control because some plane crashed and people died. He's not out of control just when what we consider the negative happens. Whether we survive or die, whether we succeed or fail, however we define success or failure, God is still in control. James dies. Peter survives. Stephen died. Paul survived. Was God like just sleeping when Stephen was being martyred? Or God was like frantically trying to save Stephen and oh man, those guys, they got that rock in there. I blocked three of them, but I couldn't get the fourth one. No. This is what I call big boy Christianity, big girl Christianity. It's not the Christianity that says, come to Jesus and he'll make all your wildest dreams come true. Come to Jesus and you can find the eternal source of happiness and a good life and you know, you'll have a great family and everything will be awesome. No. A fuller, more mature understanding of Christianity is that we're in this world and in, we're in this world for a purpose. We're here to represent Jesus, to bring the gospel of Jesus in a world that when the world confronted Jesus, they crucified him. Understand that. It's not about whether we survive or die. God's definition of success this is God's definition of success, not ours. His, success, his definition of success is simply this. Be faithful. Be faithful. Be faithful when, when times are great. Be faithful when you're having all the successes. Be faithful when times are hard, when you're, when you're sick or when your loved ones are sick. Be faithful. And by, by being faithful, it means means continue to follow God's word. Continue to to give that that unconditional love to one another. Regardless of the situations, be faithful. And I know, like, you know, people are in different stages of life. Some of you are kind of, you know, young, and, you know, the biggest problem you have is, you know, your final exam. Others of you are kind of, you know, getting near to the... This, the end stages of your life or life with your loved ones. And, and you're, you're, you're going through something that no one really prepared you for. Like, 
How do, how do I care for this person that I've loved my whole life and we've been partners our whole life and now he's so dependent on me or she's so dependent on, upon me and life seems hard. And there's all kind of things in between. The message to us is to be faithful. Be faithful. And the reason we can be faithful is because we know God is in control. I talked about last week how, how I got to participate in this, this prayer conference for global missions, and I got to bring the message. And, you know, and the message that I brought was this message of the faithfulness of the persecuted church should be an encouragement to us all. But understand, your faithfulness in hard times, it's a witness to all of those around you. Some of them are going to think you're crazy. Some of them are going to think you're naive. Some of them are going to think you're, you're being closed-minded and in denial. But there's going to be some who recognize you're none of those things. You fully understand what you face. But you're going to be faithful to the God who created you, the God who loves you, the God who saved you. It's not about whether we win or lose. Too much of modern Christianity is based on that. A lot of people, what they mean by God answers prayer is that God always says yes to whatever I want. That's not what, it's not what it means for God to answer prayer. Look at Peter. If you go back to the text, look at Peter. He's in prison. He's in prison, and he knows what's going to happen. He knows as soon as the Passover's over, which could have been a week or two weeks, he knows as soon as that Passover's over that he's going to be brought out, there's going to be this sham trial, and there's going to be all these people out there, and then he's going to be executed. He knows it. But look, the night before he knows what's going to happen, he's sleeping. That's crazy. That'd be the last time, like, man, if I only got like 12 hours on this earth, I'm going to spend them awake. Or I'm going to be so worried, so concerned, so troubled. He's sleeping. He's sleeping. He knows he's going to die. He knows the situation is impossible. It says he has two chains. There's two chains, and on the other end of those chains are two guards. So they're, being, they're chained to him too. The text doesn't tell us, but they probably are sleeping too. Outside, there's more guards. There's a locked gate. Peter knows He's not expecting some miracle. No. He's sleeping. He accepts it. What God's plan is, is God's plan, and it's not contingent upon whether I live or die. We have four letters that Paul wrote, at least four, maybe more, maybe six, that he wrote while he was in prison awaiting whether he would be sentenced to death or not. 
And in all those letters, when he says, pray for me, he never says, pray for me that I get out of this. He's always like, pray for me that I might glorify God, whether I'm here in this prison or whether I get released. In fact, the only reason he wants to get out is so that he can go to Spain and he can do missionary work in Spain. Amazing. This past week, there was a day of like remembering the persecuted church. And because of that, this story came up. And I read it right before I was like working um, a little bit more on this text. And the story came up of this young man named Jonathan Chow. And some of you might remember this story. It happened relatively recently. But Jonathan Chow was a young man, Christian, felt like called to go to, to this, this people that lived on this island that hadn't been, hadn't been reached before. And the first time he goes there, he gets killed. And what was, you know, expected from from people who weren't in the church, people who weren't Christians, what was expected was them being like, you know, what are you, crazy? You know, what are you, you know, some kind of, you're trying to expand colonialism, you know, you know, why aren't you expecting the rights of these people? You know, some, basically they pictured him as kind of this, you know, young, you know, naive idiot. And the story was to try to set some of these things right. Stuff that I didn't know. Because the shame was a lot of Christians joined in in criticizing this guy. But just the little bit that I learned, he spent nine years, nine years preparing to go to reach these people. He learned their language. He understood their culture well enough that he knew he could die. In fact, what they found after he died was they found all these letters he had written. And he had written them to his family and friends. And he, and he wrote to them and, and they, they expressed that he knew that what very well could happen is that he would die. He even asked, he said, if I get killed, don't take my body from that island. This wasn't a guy that just went off on a lark. This wasn't a guy who one day came to church and thought, oh, God's telling me go, go, go reach these people, so I'm just going to jump in a boat and go do it. He, he knew what would happen. In fact, he even prayed for those. And I don't know who those are. They may not yet be ready. But he prayed for those who would follow him. I don't know. That we would be that faithful in much less trying circumstances. Another thing that we see here is we see the reaction of that church meeting in this house. They're, they're there and they're praying and one of the questions we asked on Wednesday night was 
you know, they, they obviously weren't praying for Peter to, to be freed because when he was freed, they didn't believe he was there. Not sure what they were praying for, but I do know this, that they didn't expect God to do what he did. And I think that's important. It's important that we understand that God works even when we don't expect him to. And he works in ways that we don't expect him to. Why is that important? It gets back to that point that God is in control. This is God's work. This is God's kingdom. This is God's church. And the Bible tells us again and again, have faith. The Bible tells us again and again, bring your efforts, work hard, do what you need to do. But it also, we're constantly reminded that what really matters is what God is doing. Our faith is important, but it's not essential. God is essential. In fact, what what our faith does for us, in many ways, it's our benefit. It's for our benefit because when, when God lets me see what can happen, and when I have faith and I continue to follow no matter what those situations are, no matter if things didn't turn out the way that, that, that I thought they should have turned out, what happens is, one, I continue to keep growing in my faith. And I get to do this. I get to see God at work much longer. I don't just get to see God at work afterwards, looking back and go, yeah, look, God did that. All the way leading up to it, I see God at work. Our faith is important, but it's not essential to what God is doing. It helps us also not to base God's work on results. We are so pragmatic. We only want to do things if there's some guarantee that we will have results. In fact, we will stop doing things if we don't see the results that we think we should see. But no, God's success, what God defines success as is being faithful. Being faithful. That's what we do. We, 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 we know God's word. We hear God's voice. And we faithfully follow. But I want you to see this other point nearer to the end of this. When it talks about Herod, and again, the death of Herod is largely corroborated by non-biblical sources, by non-Christian sources. The only major difference is when Luke tells a story, he doesn't really give us how much time passes, and it's, 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 like just a, it's really just a matter of days. But we see Herod, and, and he's, he's being pictured as this, this guy that, you know, he's, he's just gaining power. You know, he's, he's have, he, you know, he's killed the leader of the, one of the leaders of the Christian church, and he's certainly going to continue that. 
And he has this power because he controls all the land, all the farmland that's going to feed these cities. And he's pictured that way. And, and he's also pictured, it's largely believed that the day he gives this great speech, it's, it's some kind of like, like Roman games done in honor of Caesar. So even better, you know, he's, he's, you know, he's kind of sucking up to Caesar and you know, having these great games and all this, and he gives this great oration, and then the people are saying, hey, this guy's like God. He's like a God. And then judgment comes. And I think the reason Luke includes this in the story is to remind us that no one escapes God's judgment or no one escapes God's mercy. That if you will not receive his mercy, you will receive his judgment. Herod dies in this story, and he really only has one son, and his son is going to live for a few decades, but he's going to die childless. This is effectively the end of the Herodian line. Judgment. No one escapes that judgment. And again, it's a reminder to us that God is in control. What Paul will write in Romans 13, that, that leaders are leaders, not because, uh, you know, why we think they're leaders. That no one is leading. There's nobody. You might think like, oh, there's that, that, that Putin guy, you know. God certainly couldn't, have allowed that Putin guy to be in, in charge. No, the Bible reminds us God is sovereign. He is in control. We don't understand it. We don't always know why. But ultimately, ultimately, if we will not accept God's mercy, and His mercy is what He provides in, in Jesus Christ, then we will Face his judgment. And then the last point. The last point that we see here with this with Peter and with the church, you know, they they don't know what's happening. They just can see what's right in front of them. What's right in front of them, James is killed, Peter's in prison. Now Peter's going to be released. But as we were reminded last week, there's things happening all over the place. Christianity spreading all over the place. Things are happening to Paul right now. Things are happening in Antioch. Paul and Barnabas are about to go out on their, on their missionary journey. Christians, Jewish Christians, have scattered, and, and they're starting to go into the, to the far reaches of the empire. The other apostles, they're going and doing ministries in different areas. So much is happening. But when we only see what's happening right here or happening in my life, I don't always understand what's going on. And I think it's important that we remind ourselves that God has a plan whether we can see it or not. God has a plan whether we can see it or not. You know, there's a there was a presumption 
you know, by a lot of, you know, America's history that God's plan was to use America. Maybe that's true, maybe that's not. But if within the next year or two, America ceased to exist, I would still say this, God has a plan whether I can see it or not. God doesn't hinge all his plans on one person, one church, one nation. No. It's not what he does. And that means we can't always see it, which is why it always goes back to be faithful. Be faithful. If your life has been incredibly routine and boring, but you've been faithful in the routine and boring, for whatever reason, God wanted you to have a routine, boring life, right? But for those of you who've had incredible highs and incredible lows, incredible failures, incredible successes, or it just seems like defeat after defeat after defeat, but if you have been faithful in all those situations, you are as much a success as anyone else in God's eyes. We're faithful. It's not always what, we look, what it looks like. Just take this to heart, what Jesus says in John 15. This is what he tells his, his, his disciples before he's, before he's going to be crucified. He says, if the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. Point. Doesn't always... Whatever God's plan is, the different stages in God's plan, it doesn't always look like what we picture. It doesn't always look like, you know, some perfect kingdom on the way to the kingdom. Sometimes it looks like a world hating us simply because we love Jesus and we're going to follow him. And so we, we come to this, this story and, and, and I hope that, that, we, that we find encouragement in it. And, and I always pray, when somebody asks me to pray for them when they're going through struggles, I, I, I always pray that God will remove their struggle, remove the challenge. But I also pray that if God is going to leave that person or even leave myself in the midst of that struggle, that I can be faithful and that that person can be faithful 